What up, though? Welcome to Audio Trip. This is your host, JS. How's everybody doing out there this week? The holiday season is approaching. I want to make sure everybody out there is being kind to other human beings. Everybody's going through something. So especially in 2020, we have all lost somebody, lost things. So be kind to everybody out there because you never know what somebody could be going through. You never know. So show some love to your fellow man and women out there. Um, it wasn't too big of a week in music this week. Not a lot of stuff dropped that I seen. If I'm wrong, hey, somebody hit me up and let me know and put me on something. I did see Currency. Looked like he had like a compilation of Jet Life crew. But um, that was about it. I haven't got a chance to listen to it yet, but I'm going to try to check it out today. Regardless, there's still a lot of great music out there. So you got to. Make sure you check it out. You know, don't just sit around waiting for music to hit you. Look for it. You know, find your own path. That's what I say. Look for the music. Find out what you like. Interesting week. The Lions won. You know, I don't know how good that is, but, you know, we are five and seven now. Be Chicago Bears. It was pretty good. You know, at least we won. Under the new coach, you know, since Matt Patricia got fired. Thank God. You know what I mean? UFC was real interesting this weekend. I've been digging that. It's been like a fight, a UFC fight every Saturday. I've been digging that. That has been a, a strong suit being in this pandemic that we are able to watch some kind of sports. You know what I mean? But I am waiting for the NBA, like the exhibition games. They start this upcoming week. So I'm really excited about that. See what my Pistons, see what the Hawks are doing. I was just looking at the date. I think it's at the uh, end of December. The Hawks play the Pistons here in Atlanta. And I was like, damn, I want to go to this. I wear a mask just to go. But no, man, UFC was quite interesting. Uh, I seen some stuff I've never seen before. I seen this brother. He uh, knocked this brother out with his elbow, dropping him to the floor, knocked the dude clean out. And my man bust into a split right afterwards. It was uh, it was very interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting. You know, if I, if I say so myself, stuff I've never seen before. You know what I mean? Never seen. You know, it was announced this weekend that Floyd is uh coming out of retirement. He's going to fight Logan Paul. The shit show continues. But that's what's up. Hey, I, I want to see a fight. I'm going to watch it. It's supposed to be in February, though. I think uh, Logan Paul is the brother of the guy who had knocked Nate Robinson out the other week on the Mike Tyson undercar. So it should be interesting. I want to see it. I think Floyd is going to wax him. Come on, man. Uh, internet superstar fighting a real boxer come on but hey you know it should be good everybody go out there and support and spend y'all money i will be watching it but um the spotify numbers came back this week it was interesting to see your ratings and stuff as a podcast it's crazy we've had listeners from eight different countries that's on uh, six continents so i am missing one we are missing one 
So, hey, if y'all know somebody in Antarctica, please hit them up and let them know that the Audio Trip podcast is out here and uh, we need that listen so we can uh, get all these continents going, y'all. Let them know. We have a great show today. Y'all going to want to stay tuned for this. We have a great show. I think you're going to love it. I think everybody will love it out there. So I'm going to go right into it after a word from my sponsor. Shotgun on Audio Trip today is pianist, composer, jazz musician, live remixer, electronic music producer, the incredible, remarkable Mark DeClive Lowe. Thank you for having me through. It's nice to be here. Yes, indeed. Good. Did you see the last episode of The Undoing? Of course, I saw the last episode of The Undoing. How did you feel about it? I felt like the white man did it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler alert. Uh, Anybody hearing this? Uh, Yeah, the white man did it. Um, And you know what, though? I was I was kind of pissed at first because right it's like the anti the anti twist yeah I wanted more I wanted to be uh, tricked out of the whole story like oh shit she did it you know or something like that but for him to do it I was like oh damn he did it you know it's like but you know they did trick us the whole way yeah. like you know every episode you're like wait she did it no wait he did it no the kids yeah. did it no the granddad did it you know it's like- yeah <laughs> the whole time I was thinking well, okay all right she kissed her. You know, she in the gym naked mm-hmm. with her. You know, mm-hmm. when we going to mm-hmm. hear anything about that? But I guess mm-hmm. now it was just all to throw us off. Yeah, yeah, which is like, a, it's kind of nice when we're, you know, we're so conditioned to look for the twist and, and, and they caught us. You yeah. know, we're looking so hard, we, we missed the, the obvious. And then when you look at it, it's so obvious. Like, how could it not have been him? <laughs> yeah, every episode you was like, yeah, you didn't know who done it. I feel like there's quite a lot of, television right now being made where they're portraying the middle to upper class at kind of regular one percent mm-hmm. white people yeah and it's the white man who's, who's who's evil yeah if you take it back like a few decades and you're watching something and it's like that classic kind of sociological trope where it's like oh the, the black dude did it or whatever but yeah. now it's like the white dude did it. I yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah yeah hey we have been doing it for years so it's good to get a break <laughs> You know what I mean? It's, it's good to get a break. You know what I mean? Hey. But it was a uh, it was a good show. It was good to be taken away for a minute. Yeah. Uh, right now I have no shows to watch, so you know it's like, damn. Okay, CNN again. You know, or ESPN. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, have you watched Dead to Me? Dead to Me. What is it on? Dead to Me. Um, I can't remember if it was on HBO or Amazon or Netflix, but that's pretty insane. What is it about? Um, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so, so it's called Dead to Me. Dead to Me. Like like there's a there's a widow who's uh-huh. searching for the hit and run driver who killed her husband. That's the basic premise. 
Ah, and I need to check it out because I have no shows right now, and it's really no sports <laughs> till on Sunday. So I'm gonna have to check it out for real. Yeah, I'm um, I can't. I can't wait for that Lakers lineup to, to debut though. Hey, it starts on the 22nd, <laughs> right? NBA season. It does, but they're playing the Clippers on like the 11th. Ah, ah, um, and, and the 13th. They're playing the Clippers twice in two days. How do you feel living in LA, being a, two good teams there? How do you pick which one to root for? I don't understand why there are two teams that I'm sure I could just Google it, but I never have. (laughs) When Golden State Warriors represent like 50 cities, why does LA have two teams in one city kind of thing? Yeah, two teams. Um, In New Zealand, I grew up in the golden age, the 80s golden age of basketball to the early 90s. Yeah, Showtime Lakers. Yeah, right. So for me growing up, it was all about the Bulls. Yeah. But obviously, you know, Celtics and Lakers always figured heavily. and, And then when I moved to LA in 2008, my son was five, and he was really loving basketball. Mm-hmm. So I took him to see the Lakers play, and that was the first time either of us had actually been to a game. So yeah. for me, growing up watching like the you know Magic and the classic Lakers play, yeah. and then going to Staples and seeing Kobe and that out on the floor, that was incredible. Yeah, I can't help but stand for the Lakers. I mean, I think it would be cool for the Clippers to rise up and take the whole championship one day, but yeah. I just don't not, see it happening. Sorry. Yeah, not, not today. <laughs> I, I I just actually started liking the Lakers again. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm from Detroit, so I hated the Lakers okay. forever. I hated the Bulls. Fair enough. I hated the uh, Lakers. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just something that you grow up with. Like, ah, I hate them. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Even though mm-hmm. Magic was from Michigan, it's just like, yup, I hate them. You right? know what I mean? Going yeah. against the team. Now, being that my team uh, is... Uh, what's a nice way of saying it? They just rebuilding. That's what they just <laughs> they rebuilding. They rebuilding. They rebuilding right yeah. now. But I'm liking the moves. I'm liking the moves. So you know, I live in Atlanta. So right, right. I go for the Hawks as long as they're not going against the Pistons. So I don't really have a super team right now. I'm everywhere. I just mm-hmm. want to see a good game. Man, me too. It's like you know, I spent ten years living in the UK, and obviously, like football or what we call soccer here yeah that's massive like basketball is here yeah and my friends used to joke how you can change your girlfriend but you can't change your team (laughs) yeah yeah no matter how bad your team is doing you cannot change yeah and even living there for a decade like i never had a team i was like show me a good game show me like world-class sportsmanship and 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 athleticism and i'm I'm there you know so i feel like with basketball we get that for sure with almost every team now i lived in london for a year right and um all right and i couldn't when when, uh, when, when was that it was what in 2014 yeah cool and um as they call it football it's cool i understand the culture Mm -hmm. but i didn't watch it until like i watched the world cup after i came back and got into it right um right 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 you know what i mean but you know it was very hard for me to watch nba games and stuff though at night i didn't know how everybody did it because i would be up in the middle of the night trying to keep up (laughs) and i was like yo this is the worst how am i doing this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How am I doing this? I got to go back home. I can't watch nothing on TV. Everything comes on in the middle of the night. You know, like four a.m. Yeah, yeah. I used to stay up to watch UFC, and it would just be morning when it's going off. I mess up the whole next day from doing it. You know, right? <laughs> but have you seen uh, Dave Chappelle Lady Special that was on Instagram? I had seen a few of your tweets comparing the music platforms. Uh, you know, like Bandcamp uh-huh. and Spotify and everything. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it made me uh-huh. think of his message in the show. Being mm-hmm. that you are a veteran in the music field, how do you feel about that shift with record sales and everything dealing with streaming? Whew. How long we got, man? How long we got? 
go ahead. Go ahead. You want, you want me on for the next 10 episodes? <laughs> <laughs> and that is our nine-part series with Mark the Cloud. Right? No. <laughs> I mean, on the real, the, I think the biggest problem right now is that the major players do not give a fuck about music. Yeah. They do not care about artists, artistry, creativity, or anything. All they care about is the metrics of content, and they know that there's an infinite supply of content creators. Yeah. It's kind of like gigs as well. It's like, you know, when live gigs come back, mm -hmm. there'll always be cats who want to play, and they'll play for less than the next guy. Mm -hmm. So... You know, there's an infinite resource there to pull from. And I actually feel very lucky. My international kind of debut record came out in 2000 on Universal. So it predated MP3. Um, yeah. You know, physical was king. We get compilation licenses and make good money from that as well. Mm -hmm. And piracy was like, you know, if you had to actually burn a CD or dub a cassette tape or, you know, it was like yeah. it took a little bit of effort. So that kind of limited it. And I... I'm definitely a digital music consumer. Like I stream for sure. I think it's incredible that we have the entire history of recorded music in our pocket. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. That's insanity, man. Like, you know, thinking about how we used to drive around with a couple of hundred CD CD books in the car and, <laughs> yeah. and then, and then yeah. someone would break into your car to steal the CD book and shit. It's like, <laughs> it has happened to me many times. <laughs> I explained that to my son and he just laughs. He's like, wait, people would break into your car to steal CDs? <laughs> <laughs> so the way this shit has evolved, you know, we could never have seen it coming. That, that's yeah. the start of it. Yeah. I use Spotify and I tried to move to Tidal, but yeah. Spotify's discovery and algorithm playlist stuff is so, so good. Like yeah. I'm actually, you know, I hear what I want to hear and I find new music on there quite often. Yeah. Um, but the rate they're paying is literally criminal. Yeah. And I think the thing they did last week where, and I'm guilty too, it's like, you know, so many Spotify artists published that end of year wrap-up image, right? With yep. like how many streams you had this year. And, you know, my streams broke a million streams this year. So I'm like, cool, that's, that's great. Yeah. Let me post that. And then I'm thinking about it. I'm like, wait, that million streams, that's about $3,000. And considering that most of my releases are with independent labels, which are on 50-50 of net deals, presuming the projects have recouped, then that 3,000, let's take off 20% of the distributor, so it's 2,700 divided by two is like, what, 1,350 or something. So basically for a million spins, here's a grand, you know, bottom line, wow. right? You know, on Bandcamp, it's like every now and then someone, someone buys a record or an album and they're paying like 10 bucks and that's 10 bucks. That's thousands and thousands of Spotify streams. Yeah. So the value to me is there's no comparison. I am a big fan of Bandcamp. I am 46. I like to own music. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I like to own my music. So, you know, I bought CDs like. I had first found out about you. Uh, I went to Tower Records here in Atlanta when it was open, and I bought Tides of Rising. Oh, nice. My favorite song was Heaven off of that album. <laughs> um, Word, yeah. And that was the first time I had heard about you. And so just years would go by. I was like, man, you know. So originally I had bought Heritage when it had came out. Oh, nice. Off of Bandcamp. Um, <laughs> I'm just a real big advocate for Bandcamp because, like you said, um, a G isn't nothing for. So if you're not Drake, you're not making no money. 
Exactly. Yeah. And then you see people who you perceive as like fairly big, like you know, maybe a Pharaoh Monch or someone, someone yeah. who I'm like, that's a legacy artist. Yeah. They have fans. They've been massive. And then you see what they post as far as their Spotify wrap up and you do that math. It's like, well, that still sucks. Yeah. There's no point where this doesn't suck. And Spotify can say, well, you know, we're still losing money, but that's not my problem. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It's like if I want to get someone to come in and renovate my house, mm-hmm. but I don't have the budget, then I can't say to them, well, look, I'm going to pay you 10 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, no, nah, the job is a $15,000 job. Like, okay, well, I can't afford to get my house renovated then. <laughs> yeah. But Spotify is not like that. They're like, well, we have a captive, it's not an audience, it's a captive creator base who that's the thing they take advantage of. We all want to make music. We yeah. make music because we need to make music. It's our mm-hmm. passion. Yeah. And the ecosystem to release the music got decimated when MP3 happened. And Spotify and to a lesser degree Apple as well, they, they worked out how to create this thing, which we have to be part of. Some people are like, well, yeah, all independent artists should just remove their music from Spotify. That would not move the needle on Spotify even an inch. Mm. You know, most of their money is coming from Rihanna and Drake and like whoever yeah. the top you know, 1% are. They couldn't care less if the rest of us walk. Yeah. And it just hurts us because ultimately, you know, an independent artist makes a few Gs a year from Spotify. Mm. That's still a few Gs. That does make a difference to someone's life, right? And yeah. on, in, at some level, even though it's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I might be playing a show in the middle of Europe and someone's like, oh, yeah, I, I found you on Spotify. And so I came to the show. Mm. We're suckers for that. It's like, well, Spotify is good because it helps people find me, right? Yeah. And then last week, this thing with the end of year wrap up, all we're doing is advertising Spotify and legitimizing it. And we're telling our fans that Spotify is the platform to find me on, even though yeah. it's the worst platform for me, economically speaking. I think what Bandcamp are doing is wonderful. They care about the artists. Yeah. The people who run it, they've all had experiences running independent labels or being artists. You know, they're all DJs. They're, they're all heads. Mm-hmm. And I swear that the upper tier of people who run Spotify are not heads. You'd be like, what's your Desert Island disc? And it'll be, you know, it'll be Celine Dion probably. You know, it's not going <laughs> to yeah. be some, some big yeah. shit. Yeah, for real. <laughs> and and that's a problem. It's like yeah, that is. we have arts institutions all over the world, you know, contemporary galleries and mm-hmm. stuff. And those are all curated by people who love the art. Yeah. They they might put an artist into the Whitney or MoMA or wherever and it might be the most progressive, unexpected new thing. Yeah. But they're like, nah, this is art. This has to be shared. This is progressing the culture. Yes. And so I think in music we've got to a point where the big players they're not progressing the culture. And I feel like the major labels are as guilty as Spotify. You know, where's artist development gone? You know, where's, yeah. where's it gone that an artist can just sound completely different and the label will support that rather than, nah, you've got to sound like young such and such or we're not yeah. going to put this out. I mean, that's, it's a problem to me. And It really is. Culture evolving is part of what makes society evolve. And yeah. don't think it's a far cry to say that the healthy evolution and development of culture or the lack of that aligns with the weird political and sociopolitical state of the world and especially America today. Yeah. Yeah. I think the fact that Bill Clinton plays saxophone actually has something to do with him being a reasonably good president. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that the fact that Trump is 
obviously devoid of any arts or cultural <laughs> any. interest or talent <laughs> or ability or enthusiasm whatsoever actually has to do with how he rules as well. Yeah. You know? So yeah. we cannot undervalue the arts and culture. It's just so important. Yeah, that's very true. I see as alternative things that you were doing, like how is the Patreon community? Oh man, I love Patreon. So the first thing I'll say is funny is there's a number of people still don't know what Patreon is. Yeah. And the joke is that everyone knows what OnlyFans is. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing, like in functionality, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just that OnlyFans is obviously adult content and yeah. Patreon's not. But it's funny because they're the same thing. And it's like, how many times in history has porn just led the way with new technology and like, you know, VHS yeah. video and stuff? They yeah. totally led the way. So, but anyway, the Patreon thing, I wanted to do that for years, but right now is literally the longest I've been in one place since 1999. Like I've been on tour wow. nonstop since 2000. I felt like, well, I can't really commit to a subscription platform where I'm promising monthly anything because I, I never know where I'm going to be. Yeah. So once the pandemic hit, lockdown started mid-March, I was like, well, okay, now's the time to start a Patreon. Ironically, it's probably the worst time to start it because a lot of the people who would subscribe to what I do are probably independent creatives themselves. Yeah. And as you know, many of those people are in the worst financial situation possible. Yeah. Um, notwithstanding that, so I started the Patreon. And I tell you, bro, it's been amazing. I've never had a stronger, fulfilling sense of community with my fans ever mm. before through anything. We do stuff like, you know, each month, we do a community Zoom chat where I invite everyone to bring some music they're inspired by that month and we all listen to music together and talk about it together. Oh, that's dope. Even that kind of shit, it's like, that's not part of our culture anymore. Yeah. A new record comes out, we'll listen to it on our phone and you might text your boy and be like, yo, check it out. You know, yeah. Here's a Spotify link. But it's not like, <laughs> you know, back in the day, yeah. you know, you and I are the same age. Yeah. yeah. You get a new record, call up the boys and be like, yo, come around, we're going to listen to this new whatever record Yo, i'm going through the linear notes like who produced this i'm reading exactly. thank yous everything you know exactly it's not a such thing doing that as a group of people together with the patreon setup has been amazing it'll be like one guy in argentina people all over the states someone in finland and everyone's bringing in different music and i mean i do a whole lot of other stuff there as well but that's a great example of where it feels like real community and then, of course, just the fact that people are willing to subscribe. It's like, for the same money you pay Spotify to have access to everything, yeah. you're paying me to have access to a sliver. Yeah. So that really shows me a lot of support and love from the fan community as well. That's dope. Uh, That's it's dope. great, man. And, but, That's... you know, the average music consumer has now been educated to believe that music is free. Yeah. $10 a month for everything, that's the thing that's free. That is free, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is basically that's the educational model. So then you get this kind of smaller segment of that population who know about Bandcamp and understand the mentality of like, oh, yeah, I'm paying for stuff here. I get to own it, and I can pay more than the asking price if I want. And most of this money is going to go to the artist, yeah. unlike when I buy a record from you know, a mainstream shop or, or down or get it from Spotify or whatever. Mm -hmm. So the band camp is like a subset of the general audience. And then for me, the Patreon supporters are a subset of the band camp heads. It's like, you know, if you want to support the artists, really knowing you're supporting them 
if you want to really get the full experience and yeah. get front row seats to the artist process and communication and community, then you go to the Patreon. So it's, it's kind of like a tiered system now, I think, like a food chain where the most people are at Spotify and they get smaller and smaller through Bandcamp and Patreon. But even then, the Patreon and Bandcamp, mm-hmm. I earn more each month through those than I do Spotify easily, like wow. easily. It's not even a question. Wow. And my Patreon's not massive. Yeah. It's like still very niche, but it still creates more income. And also it's, it creates more value as far as fulfillment and making me feel like the reason why I do what I do is meeting its audience in the way I want it to. That's dope. I'm going to have to check that out. Seriously. Keep it, man. I'm going to have to check it out. I do like a monthly exclusive on there each month, like a new piece of music. Yeah. And so that's been fun this year. You know, amongst other production work, one thing has been each month to make this new joint. And it's been cool because it's not like, you know, if I'm making a joint for a particular album, then there's probably some kind of narrative aesthetic or something I want to fit it into. Yeah. But with the Patreon, it's like, okay, let me just explore music. And so last month was the seventh track for the year. Mm-hmm. So there's almost a full-length exclusive album there, you yeah. know? So, yeah. So. <laughs> so that's fun too. All your performances, they seem so effortless when I'm watching you perform like on YouTube. How many hours a week do you spend making music? I try and have some regularity to it. I had the devil Spotify playing this morning. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. So just, you know, new stuff that came out yesterday and on yeah. Friday. And, and it was a track by my boy, John Robinson, okay. the MC out of Brooklyn. Okay. And I can't remember the line verbatim, but he was basically saying 80% of your time is on the admin and 20% is on the rapping kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the reality of being an independent artist is like most of your time and energy is on administering the business and running your socials or whatever it might be. And then you try and carve out time to actually do the art, which is the reason we're doing it in the first place. I try and make sure every day I create something. And if I'm not working to deadline on a project, then I'm just kind of jamming and messing around. Do you wake up like, uh, today I think I'm going to, uh, I'm going to do jazz or I might do electronic. <laughs> you know, how does that work? Do you just go by the feeling or what? Unless I'm working on a specific project, I'm just going with the feeling. Mm. that's been something interesting with me through my career is just kind of, you know, juggling these different things. I grew up as much a jazz head as a native tongue hip hop head, as a jungle drum and bass head. Yeah. And then later as a house head, I never felt like an interloper. Like I, those, those are like cultures I really immerse myself in Yeah, as far as the music goes. I look at them like colors. It's kind of like if you're a painter and you have a palette, it's going to have different colors on there. And if you want the green, you're going to mix the blue and the yellow together to get the yeah. exact shade of green you want. But another artist might be like, no, I only paint using blue. Yeah. And that's chill. I can dig that. But, you know, I like the palette. Yeah. To me, there's no difference really between, say, jazz, hip-hop, broken beat, and house music. Yeah. Like, it's just music. What's the big deal kind of thing? So <laughs> yeah. yeah no, no. For me, it's very much intuitive. If I'm just making music for myself, then it could go in any direction. Absolutely. That's dope. I seen in October you had released uh, Dream Weavers, the collaboration, you know, with Andre and Tommaso. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Was it uncomfortable basically leaving the production to somebody else? <laughs> um, there was one fiery moment, <laughs> 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 which um, I wish it had been caught on the video, actually, because it was pretty fiery, but... <laughs> Generally speaking, no. 
there's two things here. This is the first trio record I've done, like kind of conventional jazz trio since yeah. 1996. And wow. it's the first album I've done which I haven't produced myself ever, I think. Wow. In theory, that would be a challenge, but um, I just got to a point now where I think I've done like 20 albums and there's probably hundreds of remixes and collaborations. Yeah. And I'm at a point where I understand that an album is, is, a, is a moment in time. And yeah. I feel like when an artist makes their first album, there's this feeling of like, oh my God, I got to put in everything that I love into this one record. Mm-hmm. But you don't because there's going to be more records. So in that respect, it was actually really liberating for Tommaso and Andrea to come to me and be like, man, we want to produce your next record. You don't have to worry about anything. You don't have to worry about the studio, the mix, the licensing to the label, anything. Just turn up with some music and play. Oh, and by the way, you can't bring your electronics. (laughs) That was their thing. I was like, oh, (laughs) shit. Okay, so we're going to do a trio trio record. (laughs) Like, okay. And that was super fun. And the outcome is a record that would not exist in my catalog had they not produced it. Like, Mm. if I make a trio record, it'll be a different record. No question about it. And I love the record, but I recognize that point of difference. It's like, you know, if you're going to have Dilla produce your record, it's going to sound different to if you did it yourself or like whatever it might be. (laughs) So, yeah, man, it's it's been a really fun and, and very blessed experience to do that. And I'm a control freak. So to have an experience which is positive where I let go of that control, Mm. that's a massive learning opportunity for me and a growth opportunity for me in trusting process and trusting collaborators more too. So you wasn't at home like, oh, they better not fuck this up. (laughs) (laughs) I have not talked about this publicly at all. I'm not going to go into great detail, but there was just one moment where I was just like, I was losing my shit. And the specific person I was talking to on the other end of the mic who was ostensibly producing the session right then, I just felt like, yeah, you don't know what you're fucking doing. (laughs) It was was one of those. But I feel like that happens in the best of collaborations. Like you find that point of friction with your collaborators. It's almost like a kid, you know, like little kids will push a boundary until the parent snaps. (laughs) And then they're like, oh shit, I can't do that again. You know, like, you know where the boundary is. So I think that was a natural part of the process. And, we had to have a moment where we understood how far we could push this. Like, okay, I better not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was actually thinking, man, okay, he better not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's all part of the fun, though. Yeah. Part of the process. Oh, man, that's funny. I, um, <laughs> you know, just going back and looking at old uh, YouTube, early on you had the NPC, then you went to the machine. Yeah. How do you feel like experimenting with new equipment I remember when I was in college, I had took one of my checks. Loan people don't get mad at me, but I took one of my checks and I went and bought an SB 1200, right? Oh, nice, nice, nice. And, and, hold on, and it was just because I seen like Pete Rock had it, right? And so <laughs> yeah, yeah. it didn't come with a book, right? And so I, I got the shit home and I was like, this is like a, a big ass telephone. I don't know what to do with this shit, right? And so I took it back to Guitar Center, like, yo, I need to trade this in, right? And, um, I went and got an MPC 2000. And um, uh-huh, uh-huh. and so from that point on, I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing. It came with a book. 
So yeah. how are you with new equipment? Do you just go right in or you just have that learning curve? Yeah, I, I tend to dive right in. And then, you know, if I get stuck, I'll pull out the book. Yeah. Unless something is a whole new modality, then I feel pretty comfortable just stumbling around. My first MP was also the 2000s. Mm. And I got that because you know I've been in the UK and collaborating. So many of them were using SPs and MPs, and yeah. um, the 2000 had just dropped. So I bought that, and then not too long after that, I upgraded to the 3000, um, which really became my my weapon of choice for a long time. Yeah. And the funny thing was, you know, I had a few videos on YouTube or whatever, and when Native Instruments made machines, yeah, I guess they saw what I was doing, and they're like, "Oh man, he should be on machines." They sent me the first machine. Ah. And I remember taking out the box. It kind of looks like an NPC, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I plugged it in, and it's not an NPC, so you can't just do the same workflow. <laughs> no, you can't. Thing, right? No, uh-uh. So I was just like, oh, fuck this. I put it back in the box. <laughs> it literally gathered dust for a year. And then I was in New York doing a show, and there's a music school out there it used to be called Dubspot. And yeah. Dubspot invited me in. They're like, you know, we do a little workshop on... I can't remember what it was on. Yeah. So I have a feeling they weren't offering to pay me or anything, but they were like, you know, if there's anything we can help you with, let us know. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that Dubspot's machine instructor was an NPC user. Mm. So I was like, give me an hour with your boy. And so he basically walked me through machines from the perspective of an NPC user. Mm. And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, now I get it. So, um, you know, fully went digital. And as machines evolve and become more powerful, you can do more. My workflow is so much faster and this is so much possibility. However, <laughs> I would say maybe five years ago or so, I had a show in New Orleans mm-hmm. and I was here in LA. The night before I flew out, my laptop died. Wow. And so I'm like, I have a show in New Orleans tomorrow and I no longer have the brain. Wow. You know, machine, until now, the machine plugged, but until that point, you can't run a machine without a computer, right? Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to have to pull out the MP. And I literally hadn't taken my MP out of its flight case at that point for maybe seven years. Yeah. So I'd pull out this MP3000 with a scuzzy zip drive, tie oh. my zip disk. <laughs> oh, I'm just crossing my fingers, praying it all loads up. <laughs> And I have a, a, a Korg radius, like an analog sensor. I, I like to use the baseline every uh-huh. day a lot. So I had these two things patched together and, and it all worked. And the funny thing was that as soon as I loaded up my kit, like I found this zip disk that did like, you know, 2003 live kit. Uh-huh. So I loaded that up and, and I still use a lot of those sounds on the machine. So it's funny when I loaded it up and I hit those same sounds. They sounded completely different coming out to the, to the 3000. Wow. There's just no question. It's like comparing a, a fucking tank to a Prius. Wow. They'll both get you there, but one's a tank, you know? Yeah. And so I took this gear with me to New Orleans and we did a show. And it was actually really fun to revisit how I did make stuff before and also the Sonic. But I could have probably only work about 20% of the speed I was used to working. Yeah. Which was still probably plenty fast enough. It was interesting because there's a lot of limitations with all the technology. And as a creator, that forces you to create differently and make different decisions. So I found that fascinating. But yeah, for the most part, I'm machine all day long. I love that. Yeah. When I came back from London, 
I had bought mm. the machine and no, I had bought it right before I went to London and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. You know what I right? mean? <laughs> because I was so used to the NPC. I'm like, I don't know. Exactly. I had to get rid of it at that time because yes, I still had zip disc and you know, the mm-hmm. shit is clicking like click, click, click. And then we won't load my shit up. And I was like, damn, I got to get something new. So I went and got the machine and I could not work it. I took it back and got a NPC studio. And that's what I still use to this day. But I needed some lessons bad. And I remember at the time, I, it wasn't nothing on YouTube about it. I'm like, man. Nothing. Yeah, I, I couldn't do nothing. I couldn't do nothing with it. So I was like, hey. No, absolutely. But it's looking a lot better now. I'm like, man, maybe I need to revisit it. I'm just scared of that learning curve and that I will be making stuff like I did when I first got uh the 2000. Like, this shit is hot. It's just a, a bass drum and a snare drum. Like, no, this shit is not hot. This is. <laughs> I swear, even when I switched from the NPC from the 2000 to the 3000, it was like, you know, I was used to using the 2000, like, live in the studio. I could kill it. It was all good. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I get a 3, which is ostensibly the same machine, just different circuitry, basically. And, like, the beats I made just sucked. They were so bad. <laughs> I couldn't understand it. I mean, I guess it's, it's like any learning curve. You just got to yeah. stick with it. And then one day, it just it was like, okay, cool. Now I got it. Yeah. I feel like if we have faith in ourselves and we know that the tool works, I just don't know how to work it yet. So once yeah. I know how to work it, we're straight, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. That's really true. I was admiring some of your album covers, you know, like Church Sessions and Heritage 1 and 2. The cover mm-hmm. art on your projects, do you have a lot of input into it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it differs from project to project. Yeah. With Heritage, I knew the artist I wanted to work with. His name is Tokyo Aoyama. Okay. He's in Japan, and his stuff is actually, most of it is very kind of B-boy, street art meets Salvador Dali kind of. Yeah. But it's definitely got a real black contemporary music feel to it. Mm. And I knew I didn't want that for the Heritage record because the Heritage project was a lot more, I guess, subtle and personal. Yeah. But I know he's a great artist. So I just said to him, I was like, let me send you the record and see what you come up with. And so their first Heritage album, he sent me a pencil sketch of a couple of things. And one was, what is the final artwork? And so I love that straight away. I was like, that tells the whole story. You know, you put a Japanese garden inside the grand piano. Like yeah, that, yeah. that is the hot. story. But then I decided that the album was too long. Mm-hmm. So I was going to divide it into Heritage 1 and Heritage 2. So I hit him up. I was like, yo, I need another, I need another a cover. Mm-hmm. And he sent me a sketch, and it, it didn't resonate with me. So I was like, look, what if we use the same image, but if you put a, a bonodori, which is a Japanese summer kind of dance festival, if you put a bonodori inside the panel instead of the Japanese garden and make uh. it nighttime instead of daytime. And so he did that, and it was perfect. It was kind of a day and night juxtaposition through two, two records. So that was a really collaborative effort. It, couldn't, it couldn't have happened without his inception at all. Yeah. But yeah, just to have that kind of relationship with visual artists is great. And then other times, like church sessions, that's a, this guy named Solar. He's a collage maker from the UK. Mm-hmm. I follow this shit. I really like it. And one day he posted that image on his IG. Oh. And I was like, that's it. So I set him up straight away. I was like, yo, I want to license that. I need you to take it off your IG right now. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. It just really captured that kind of otherworldly, but still but with nature kind of juxtaposition of things, which is you know very indicative of what I like in general. Um, but I also, I love seeing artists disinterpret of their own free will too. Yeah. 
like not the Church Sessions album, but the Church album, that as Roland Lefort. We've done a lot of work together, and I just trust him 100%. So I'm like, bro, just make me something. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and he just comes <laughs> so, yeah, from there. That's, that's dope. That's dope. Yeah. Yeah. You've lived in New Zealand. You know, you're from New Zealand, but Japan, London, LA. How does it feel to have your music universally appreciated all around I mean, the world? I'm super humble, man, and very appreciative. To be able to put out music for like 20 years and still have people checking for it and recognizing, you know, like every artist has a unique voice, but yeah. they're not always recognized. So I appreciate that the people who like what I do recognize that there's a uniqueness to that and, and something different. And then also the breadth of it, like, you know, I really appreciate that someone's not freaked out when I put out like an esoteric Japanese jazz record one day and mm. then a, a banging dance floor joint the next day. You know, that doesn't seem to phase people. So I appreciate yeah. people are really open to that. And I think it also speaks to the kind of globalized nature of culture today. It's like, you know, jazz and hip hop are great examples. You know, two undeniably incredible, great black American art forms, mm -hmm. which have permeated literally every corner of the globe. Yeah. You go to Beijing and you'll find kids who are like just killing jazz musicians or making killing hip hop beats. And yeah. someone's rhyming in Cantonese over it. And, you know, that's, the way these forms of music had their own kind of diaspora and evolved into different iterations and different cultures and communities, I think is a really wonderful testament to humanity and yeah. how we are all united, but we all have our different points of view, but those points of views don't have to kind of erase each other. Yeah. You know, Chinese hip hop doesn't negate Illmatic or yeah. vice versa, you know, yeah. it's, it's all valid. And so, I do feel like there's a point of privilege for me where I'm able to kind of straddle, you know, genres. Yeah, because you, you are accepted in so many different worlds. Yeah, and that's not lost on me. Like, you know, since I moved to L.A. like 12 years ago, I've been very much embraced by some of my favorite jazz musicians. And, mm. you know, I grew up aspiring to be that. You know, like, Mo Better Blue changed my life. Yeah, I saw that. Wow, and I'm like, wow, that is, that is crazy. I want to be that straight ahead, hip as shit jazz musician in New York. I want to play without Blakey and Betty Carter and Bamford. Yeah. And that was the world to me. Yeah. You know, I, I like to say I tripped over a drum machine on my way to the dance floor, kind of metaphorically yeah. speaking, and everything changed. But then to grow up listening to so much heavy jazz and then come here to the States and be embraced by not just that community, but some of those actual specific players that I grew up listening to. Yeah. And then recognizing that I had something different to offer them and to create together. I mean, I couldn't be happier. That's really special to me. Yeah, that has to feel good to be accepted by people that you looked up to growing up. Yeah. It's wild because growing up, hip hop got me into jazz. You know what I mean? Yeah. My father yeah. always yeah. listened to jazz uh, and was mm -hmm. a musician, but... I never listened to it until uh, Tribe, Gangstar, mm -hmm. growing mm -hmm. up, and you end up hearing the samples, mm -hmm. and you end like, oh, no, this is hot. So you get into it from that point. Absolutely. You learn to appreciate it. And just, yeah. and just like you said, yes, you must be 46 also, because Mo' Better Blues is my favorite <laughs> movie of all time. You know, when I first seen Mo' Better Blues, it made me see how cool jazz was. And I was like, damn. So hip, man. Yeah, I was like, yo, jazz is cool. Oh, the, the music. Yeah. I was listening to like Miles Coltrane and stuff, but mm -hmm. I hadn't really come across that. I think it's now it's called the kind of 
neoclassical young lion jazz renaissance or something yeah. from that time, which you know was largely spearheaded by Winston and Bramford Marsalis. Yeah, I hadn't really heard that music, so hearing to this day what's still kind of the pinnacle of that music in that soundtrack. I mean, I would take Harlem Blues off the record. I don't think that belongs there. Yeah. I understand it's part of the soundtrack. Yeah, it's part of the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the record store the next day. I was like, I need to get this soundtrack. And what was that, like 1990 or yeah, 91 yeah. or around then? And, yeah. and then Bramford myself had just put out a new record called Crazy People Music at the same time. So I bought mm. that too. And that was life-changing for me. You know, because I was listening to like 1960s jazz and yeah. this is showing me what, what's happening in jazz today, how dope it is. And then in the movie, the styling is, as you know, is ridiculous. Yeah. It's the epitome of hip. Yeah. You listen to the soundtrack and then, you know, gang style and jazz thing. Yeah. They, the, the history of jazz, like Guru preaches it in yeah. one piece of music. In one piece. Man, I had that soundtrack. I bought it two times. Yeah. And I still don't have it right now. Um, <laughs> just like you was talking about somebody breaking in your car stealing your CDs oh, uh-huh. they got me <laughs> and you know the messed up thing I remember the CDs that I don't have now that was in that damn book you know what I mean Right. my Omar singles for uh, oh, Fine man. Wine it, he had these singles and it had just these one off songs on there and they was yeah. in that damn book my Mo Better Blues CD was in there also but you know hey <laughs> And I can't find it on a lot of stuff. So, you know, hey, it is what it is, you know? I mean, it's it's funny the stuff which hasn't been reissued. Like, there's definitely, Moby Blues has been, obviously, that's streaming now. But there's still a lot of stuff from the 90s which is not available on streaming services. And I do similarly. Sometimes I I think about my CD books and I can picture what's on each page. And it's so different with digital music now where, you know, I don't remember what albums are saved on my Spotify or whatever. Yeah. And I think most consumers, like a new record comes out on streaming services and it will have their attention for like a day or a week and then it's gone. Yeah. It was different when, you know, we've established we're the same age. So you yeah. remember like saving up your money to buy that new record and you live with that record, yeah. you know, over and over again. And it becomes part of your soundtrack and your story. And yeah. and if you put that record on now, like 20 whatever years later, mm-hmm. 30 years later, it takes you back to that moment. Yep. I don't know if streaming culture has that same I don't think they'd impact. be able to have that. I really don't think they'd right? be able to have it because we engulfed the music when it came out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, we really listened to it. And so I remember albums that came out certain days the albums I bought with it at that time. I remember when I bought uh, right. the low end theory. Right. Uh-huh. I bought the low end theory and too short on the same, on the same day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I bought them both on the same day. Right. And you know, I listened yeah. to one more than I did the other, but mm-hmm. you really remember those days. And now you don't remember anything like that. when you have music, listen to it because it's almost like something that you purchase you will appreciate a lot more than something that was given to you a lot of times or that you that you just yeah. go and just play on your phone or whatever. Yeah, absolutely, man. You just appreciate 100%. it more. Uh, Mark, so where can everybody find you at? For sure. Um, I'm, I'm really easy to find, like whatever your preferred platform is. You type my name into the interwebs and I'll be there, Mark the Clive Lowe. Um, but the place I really want to see people at is my Patreon to really, you know, build community and share some special stuff. So that's patreon.com slash mdcl. 
but yeah, I'm reachable every which way, you know, whether it's IG or Twitter or whatever it might be. I, I always enjoy connecting with people and, you know, it's building. So yeah, no. come say hi. No doubt. We will do that. And I'm going to join your Patreon. I want to check it out because it sounds dope. Come through, man. I appreciate it, brother. You're welcome, man. And hey, and I got to say too, I really enjoyed your podcast with Alexander London. Oh, really? Dope. Thank you. That was one of the, as far as an artist, yeah. having their say, one of the, one of the most humble yeah. and just open-hearted, love-centered conversations I've ever heard. Like, he's special, man. So I'm, I'm glad you did that. Yeah, he was a good brother. It's so good when I talk to people and they are just good people, man. So, man, I just like, hey, I appreciate everything you do. And, you know, I am a fan after seeing so much that you have done through the years. I was just like, yo, like, oh, he's going to be on the show. I was really geeked about it. So I've been waiting for this day, man. <laughs> oh, man, thanks for having me. <laughs> I just always been into so many different kinds of music. So, man, it's dope, man. I, I appreciate you being on the show, man. And um, we're going to promote everything you got. So I hit you on Patreon and see how everything going. 100%. I appreciate you, man. Thank you. All right. No problem. Man, that was good talking to that brother, Mark DeClive Lowe. That was a great conversation. Make sure that y'all go out and support his Patreon and purchase the music on Bandcamp. You know, you can't stream it, but the artists get more if you buy it on Bandcamp or support the Patreon. And you can also get exclusive music and just exclusive information from the brother. I also want to thank everybody who has been coming to the website and who I've bought merch off of the audio trip merch store. If you don't know about it, if you miss Cyber Monday, we are still giving 10% off and you can find us at audiotrippodcast.com. And you can also catch us on Instagram under Audio Trip Podcast. And don't miss that show. You know what I mean? Go in there and check out, see something you like. You can also find all of the Audio Trip Podcast episodes on our website, and that is audiotrippodcast.com. Go back and listen to some of those episodes that you missed. That's a lot of good stuff in there. This is from your man, JS, and the Audio Trip Podcast. Y'all take care. Have a good week.